Hebrews chapter 12, I quote from this passage um, pretty often, at least different parts of it. But in Hebrews chapter 12, it, it follows that chapter on faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 tells us what faith looks like, what faith does, and then it gives us a bunch of examples of people that lived out their faith. Faith and works always walk hand in hand. And so chapter 12 of Hebrews begins with this, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, talking about those folks that have lived out their faith before us that we read about, that we admire, he challenges us then to let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. So today is Palm Sunday. You know that. We begin what is going to be and uh, what is traditionally the, the, the highest, holiest week of the year for Christianity, um, beginning on Palm Sunday and, and ending on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And this is the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and was hailed as the king. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that this was a specific fulfillment of at least two different prophecies. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 told the Jewish people that they should be looking for their king, that he would come riding to them, um, having salvation, riding upon an ass, riding upon the colt, the foal um, of a donkey. So... Um, you got that, that very specific prophecy in Zechariah 9, 9 that the Jewish people would have known was a reference to the Messiah, their king coming, and how he would enter into that city. And then in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, this is a little bit more difficult to dig it out, and I'm not going to get into details, but you study this passage out. Daniel told the people exactly to the day that their Messiah would come riding into Jerusalem. From the going forth of the commandment unto Messiah the Prince, and then I don't have time to break down what he means by that seven, that three score and two weeks. He's talking about weeks of years. I've broken that down before. But he said from the, from the commandment to rebuild the temple unto Messiah is going to be X number of years, X number of days, if you go by prophetic years, um, uh, and, and 30 days in a month, you come out to something, I think it's 173,880, but he prophesied literally to the day that Jesus would march into Jerusalem, as Zechariah said, and be hailed as the king. And even though they hailed him as the king on this Sunday, by Friday they would be crucifying him as a criminal on a cross between Two thieves. This is kind of where I've been back and forth all week. It has always it has always interested me since I have considered it that for a big part of Jesus' ministry, he hid his identity. He kept it kind of he flew under the radar, so to speak. 
which is about exactly the opposite that we would expect him to do. But if you follow Jesus' life, in fact, we don't see hardly anything about him from between his birth and 12 years old. We know essentially nothing about Jesus' life. And we, we get a little glimpse of him in, 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 uh, as a 12-year-old boy in the temple and the wisdom that he had and how he confounded the doctors and the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he disappears again until he's 30 years old. And his cousin introduces him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he gathers up his disciples. And, and, and sure, he gains some popularity. He gains some notoriety, uh, no, some notoriety in his time because of the things that he was doing and the, and the way that he spoke. The Bible, people were constantly amazed that Jesus spoke as one who had authority. And they were really amazed at the miracles that were performed. But even if you look at the miracles, when it, when it came time for Jesus to perform his first miracle at a wedding, turning the water into wine, he told his mom, it's not my time yet. It's not time for me to reveal myself yet. And if you look at a lot of the miracles that he performed, when he performed those miracles, he'd tell those folks, don't tell anybody. Go keep this quiet. Don't broadcast this. Don't make it, don't make it public. Now, they did. But not, none of them could keep it quiet, and so they'd go tell others, and they'd bring more people to him to be healed. But most of Jesus' ministry, he simply taught people, like a prophet, what the Word of God said and what the Word of God meant. And, and, and he, um, even when he did something miraculous, he basically said, let's, let's keep this quiet for now. It wasn't time yet. But this day, the significance of this day is that Jesus, this is Jesus' formal introduction to the world as the Messiah that was promised. Um, this was his introduction to the whole Jewish world that I am your king. If you remember what the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, when Jesus rode into town and they were laying those palm branches down and, and saying, Hosanna, hail to the king, save us we pray, is what Hosanna means. The scribes and the Pharisees that were looking on said, you need to tell your disciples that they need to hush. Um, they were offended that Jesus was being held as the king. And, and remember what Jesus told them? That if I told them to hold their peace on this day, the rocks would cry out in their place. It was time for him to introduce himself to the world as the king. In fact, I would submit to you that his whole life was lived for this moment. Jesus lived the whole 33 and a half years of his life for this one week in time that he would introduce himself to the world as the king, as the Messiah, and this day would begin what would become the most horrific week of his entire existence in this world. But he, he literally lived for this moment that would end in his crucifixion. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says that he endured the cross, despising the shame. But he chose it. He endured it 
He despised it, but he chose it. And we, we talked about this Wednesday night. Jesus is God manifested in human flesh. Every title, every attribute, and every work that is ascribed to God in the Old Testament is ascribed to Jesus in the New Testament. He is God incarnate. God in human flesh. And so understanding that, as God, He is the one that pronounced the penalty for sin. He is the one that said, if you, if you rebel, if you sin against me, you shall surely die. And that death is not, we understand that death is, it is spiritually, you die immediately, emotionally you begin a process, mentally you begin a process of dying, and ultimately you die physically. The soul that sins against me shall surely die. It is God that pronounced the penalty of sin as death. And then it is God who came down to pay that penalty himself for us. Let, let me walk you on a little journey through Hebrews chapter, just to prove that I, this is my whole point in doing this, is to prove that Jesus lived his whole life's ministry for this moment. Now, there was some good teaching, some good parables. There's a, there's a lot of stuff that we needed. But if you look at what Jesus said, I did not come to serve, to be served. I came to serve. I didn't, I didn't come to be ministered to. I came to minister and to give my life as a ransom for many. He, he told us that his purpose was to die. I came to die. Now, he ministered. He served. He taught. But his purpose was to die in our stead. And to prove that, I just want to walk you through Luke. I'm not going to turn there. I'm not going to take the time to turn there. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we get the first. This is very early in Luke's gospel. This is right after he had called his own uh, apostles and, and told them what their mission were and, and then called those 70 and sent them out into the world. Uh, in, in Luke 9, verse 51, it said, It came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, talking about his ascension, which is after his crucifixion and resurrection, he steadfastly, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew what was in Jerusalem waiting on him. He knew all the pain that was in Jerusalem. He knew all the shame um, that he would experience in Jerusalem. But he set his sights on Jerusalem. Luke chapter 13 verse 22. You can follow this narrative all the way through. He went through the cities and villages teaching... But his sights were set on journeying toward Jerusalem. Chapter 17, verse 11. said, It came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through Samaria and Galilee. So you understand that from Luke chapter 9 all the way up to chapter 19 that Jesus is constantly, he's ministering as he goes, but his sights are set on this week that's ahead of us. And what he would endure for us and what he would despise for us. Luke chapter 18 verse 31. He took the twelve and said, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. And he went in the next two verses and spelled out for them in detail what he was about to endure and despise for us. 
in Luke chapter 19, verse 11, when they had finally arrived on the scene, um, he, 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 he came to them and spake a parable, one of the last parables that he would speak because he was right there at the gates of Jerusalem. And they thought when he was speaking that the kingdom of God was going to immediately appear because he is unveiling himself now for them. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 38, he reached that destiny that he had lived all of his life to die for when they announced him formally to the Jewish nation as the king that had been promised to them from the beginning. Now, what Jesus knew is that in Jerusalem, betrayal was waiting on him. The betrayal of his friends. What he knew was waiting on him in Jerusalem is that slander was there. That they couldn't find anything to accuse him of, so they made it up. Condemnation was there. Mockery was there. Insult was there. They plucked his beard. They spat in his face. They smote him over their head and said, Prophesy unto us if you're the king. They stripped him naked. Listen, Jesus was paraded through the streets of the city and crucified on a cross naked. He endured the cross and despised the shame associated with it. I get it that Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, for the joy that was set before him he endured. But he, there was nothing enjoyable about the cross. There's nothing enjoyable about the shame that he submitted himself to. The joy that he had was that he knew in, in enduring the cross and in despising the shame but submitting himself to it that he was paying sin's price, that he was taking death's sting and that he was conquering hell's grave for us. That was the joy. The joy wasn't in the cross. The joy wasn't in the shame. The joy was in what that accomplished for us. He did it for the joy of seeing sinners like us saved so that we could en en enjoy the joy of eternity with Him. The song came to mind when I was meditating on those thoughts. The songwriter said, No one ever cared for me like Jesus. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. You know, we could talk for a long time about that week. Everything that he endured. Everything that he despised. But I think that song says it all. Nobody has ever done more for us than Jesus.
nobody else could do for us what Jesus did. What was required for sin's sacrifice was a perfect specimen of humanity. Nobody but a man who was God and a man who was a man could do that. So my question this morning is after all that Jesus has done and is doing for us, what can you do for Jesus? Now let me, let me say, you can't ever repay him. I can't ever repay him. If I preached a million sermons and led tens of thousands of people to Christ, that would not be sufficient to repay him for what he's done. We can't repay him. That's impossible for us to do. And it has, it, it, that is not what has ever been asked of any of us. It has never been asked that we pay him back for what he has done. That is an impossibility. Salvation, let me say this, salvation is a gift of grace to us. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it and we can't pay him back for it. You understand that? It is a gift of grace. We do not deserve it. We cannot earn it and we can never pay him back for having received it. It's a gift of God that has given to us eternal life. He saved us. By his own death. Is there anything that we can do to honor him with our lives? Is there anything that we can do to honor him with our lives? And let's be truthful for just a minute, all right? Let's just be transparent, honest. We often give more honor to other people who have done far less for us than we give to Jesus. I could give you a list. And I'm not saying these people don't deserve some honor. But they don't deserve as much honor as Jesus. Sometimes we give more honor to our parents than we give to Christ. Your parents have not done more for you than Christ did. Sometimes we give more honor to a soldier than we give to Christ. Soldiers have done much for us. We ought to honor them. We ought not to honor them more than we honor Jesus. We honor athletes. We honor teachers. We honor... Actors, we honor all kind of people. And sadly, a lot of those folks, we give more time and attention and effort to honoring them than we do to Christ. And I want to just say to you, after all he endured for us, we ought to be most, most ready and willing and anxious to do something to exalt him. And I, I just want to say, I believe it is wicked and shameful for us to do anything else with our lives as Christians than to honor and exalt Him. 
it's, it is wicked and shameful when we fail to honor him with our lives. So what can you do for Jesus? Our text in Hebrews chapter 12 gives us some answers to that question. Lay aside every weight. Lay aside every weight. If it's slowing you down, if it's hindering you in any way from honoring Jesus, you all let it go. You all lay it aside. It needs to be unloaded from our lives if it hinders us from running for Jesus. Lay aside every weight. When you see these runners getting ready for these marathons, um, they're not carrying anything more than they need to carry on their person. They're lightening the load so that they can run that race that is set before them. And when it comes to our living a life that honors Jesus, we need to lay aside anything and everything that distracts us from following Him with all of our heart. If it's slowing us down, if it's hindering us, we need to get rid of it. And that could be a relationship. Listen, I've had some relationships in my life that were not profitable for me to run for Jesus. In fact, one of the things that held me back for many years in giving my life to Jesus was the group of friends that I surrounded myself with I knew that they, they would not run this race that I was running with me. I knew that if I ran it, I'd be running without them. So I hung on to them for a long time. I white-knuckled pews because I knew that some of the friend groups that I hung around with every day of my life would have to be unloaded. Not that I despised them. Not that I, didn't. I wanted them to have what I had. But I knew that I couldn't run in those circles without being hindered in my walk with Christ. And so I had to unload some relationships in my life that would have hindered me from running to Christ. It, it may be an ambition. Listen, I see ambitions are good. We all, not, we all ought to have some ambitions. But when our ambitions in this world supersede our allegiance and our devotion and our loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to unload those things. I'm telling you, I've seen wealth and prosperity get in people's way. I've seen popularity and position get in people's way. I've seen a worldly ambition take people off track and take them away from their Firm and full-hearted devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lay aside the weight. If it's a habit, an ambition, a hobby, don't let it rob Jesus of the glory that He's worthy of in your life. Cast off every sin. I believe it is a shame and reproach for Christians to claim victory in Christ and wallow in sin. Now I ain't standing up here this morning telling you that my life is sinless. I can tell you this, since I've come to Christ, I sin less. Since I come to Christ, I can't enjoy sin like I used to enjoy sin. Since I've come to Christ, I have a conviction in my heart when I fail Him, especially when I fail Him in a public manner. When I do something that I know has brought shame and reproach to His name, I feel shame in my heart and I have to confess that and come clean with that so that my fellowship with Him can be, can be rock solid and sincere so that His blood can cleanse me from my sin and I can continue to walk in fellowship. If we have sin in our life that He has revealed to us, if He has saved us, then He's given us the power to overcome that sin, to be conquerors of that sin. Read Romans chapter 6 if you don't believe that. 
I, there's a lot of false prophets and false teachers in the world today that are preaching a cheap grace. That are preaching that since we have grace, we can keep on living in sin. Paul said exactly the opposite of that. Now he said where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Listen, God's grace is sufficient. It can conquer. It can overcome. It can get us to heaven. That's a done deal. We are justified by faith because of His grace. But he went on to say, so should we keep on sinning so that grace can keep on abounding? His answer to that question was the most emphatic he could make. God forbid. How can we that are dead to sin keep living in it? Paul wrote to Titus, Titus chapter 2 beginning in verse 11, that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously in this present world, uh, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that if we live in grace, we live to conquer sin in our life. We are to cast it off. It doesn't matter what kind it is. Listen, we've, we've, we've quantified, qualified sin, and we think, well, as long as I'm not guilty of, 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 of those gross sins of sexual immorality or drunkenness or something of that nature, I'm all right. Listen, God calls us to cast off the sin of bitterness, to cast off the sin of unforgiveness, to cast off the sin of gossip. He calls us to cast off all sin, cast off every sin that brings shame and reproach to the cause of Christ. I believe we honor him when we crucify that old man. I believe that we honor him every day that we die to ourselves and decide that we're going to live for him. What can you do for Jesus? You can lay aside those things that are hindering you. You can cast off those sins that are a shame and reproach unto your life and to the kingdom of Christ. You can run the race faithfully. Listen, the idea that he's given to us here in Hebrews chapter 12 is not a 40-yard dash to an altar. It's a marathon. It is a lifelong commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ to live for him faithfully. Listen, you, I, I believe that all of us have those, spirit, those, those times in our life where there's a little bit of an ebb and a flow, a little bit of a hilltop and a valley where... Where we kind of are, we're, we're, we're on fire and then we cool off a little bit. And we get on fire and we cool off a little bit. And I get that. That's part of the human experience. In fact, I think God teaches us some things sometimes in those valleys. But here's what I want you to understand. You can be faithful. Even in those times when you're not feeling that way. Um, one of the things C.S. Lewis wrote in the screw tape letters, I've mentioned it several times, but it, I, my mind always comes back to this. He said, nothing pleases God more than a man who is feeling nothing. God seems a million miles away. His prayer life seems like the heavens are brass. Nobody's hearing him. He, his, his worship experience is dry. He has a hard time reading the Bible. But he said, nothing pleases God more than when a man feeling nothing is faithful to continue to pray to continue to read, to continue to witness, to continue to, to attend church, to, to continue to assemble themselves together with other believers, being faithful when you don't feel like it. You, do you know that we can all do that? 
we, we can, all, every Christian um, can be an outstanding Christian by simply being faithful to Christ, faithful to His church, faithful to those callings of reading and studying and, and giving and, and witnessing and attending. You can, everybody can do that. You don't have to have the same gift. You don't have to have the same talents. You don't have to have the same resources. Listen, everybody in this room can be faithful and we ought to be. Why? Because he was faithful. He never lost sight of his mission to save us. We ought never lose sight of our mission to glorify him. We do that by being faithful. In fact, the Bible tells us that it is required of those that have been made stewards of the gospel that we be found faithful. I remember Brother Hinky Matthews used to say this all the time, that one of the best things that I can do as a witness for Christ is get up every Sunday morning and put my, put my Sunday clothes on and let my neighbors watch me drive away to go worship God. It, that's one of the things that stands out between us and the world is that we have set aside a day that we focus on our Lord, on His church, on His Word. And the last thing I think that He tells us to do in Hebrews chapter 12 is that we keep our eyes on Jesus. That we focus our lives on Jesus. It called him in verse 2 the author and finisher, the originator and the perfecter of our faith. And we're to keep our eyes on him, make him the focus of our life. Think about him as your Savior. Think about him as your Lord. Think about him as your example. Make Christ the centerpiece of your life. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And then whatever life brings to you, whatever, whatever it is that you have to endure, I believe that we can endure anything for Him if we never forget what He endured for us. We've not endured anything that compares even remotely to what He endured. Now, if you don't believe that, we can sit down and talk about it. There's a bridge in one of the songs we sing. I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. You and I will never know what it feels like to be forsaken by the Father because He was forsaken for us. We sang it this morning. He didn't deserve anything that he received. We deserve everything that he received. Yet he took it for us so that we might escape it. So I, I believe as long as we can remind ourselves of what he did, we can endure anything for his sake. My friend Bill Mullis, he won't mind me sharing this. A few years ago, I was sitting in a deer stand. 
We made, a, we made a covenant with each other 20 years ago, me and him and Donnie. I think Brother Adam Henderson was in on it too. We basically got together one morning. Another pastor in our community had abruptly resigned and walked away from his church over some stuff. It was a burden to all of us. As we, we had grown to love him, and he just kind of walked away. But Bill said, let's make a covenant with each other this morning. Let's enter into covenant with each other that none of us will ever resign from, our, from the church that we're currently pastoring without notifying the others in that circle of friends, or four of us. And, and you got to call the other three and say, this is my 21-day notice that I'm resigning the church. And then for the next 21 days, we committed ourselves to hold that pastor accountable, to make sure he's doing everything that he's been called to do, and to pray for him during that 21 days. And then if the end 21 days, he still feels like God's leading him somewhere else, then we'll give him our blessing, lay hands on him, send him on, on his way. None of, all of us are still in ministry, same place. <laughs> I was sitting in a deer stand one day, and Brother Bill called. My phone went ringing. I looked at it, and I'm thinking, I, I don't want to blow my deer hunt. I'll call him back. It quit ringing. About 10 seconds later, it started ringing again. I'm thinking, okay, something's wrong. I let it ring again, and it went to voicemail. I listened to the phone. I, I put the phone to my ear and hit the voicemail, and Bill said, this is my 21-day notice. I'm quitting. I'm tired of it. I can't, I can't handle these people no more. <laughs> I'm done with it. <laughs> He's the only one that's done that so far, <laughs> to me anyway. And he done called the other ones, or he called them after me. And the only verse that came to my mind, was Hebrews 12, 3. Consider him that endured such a contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. And so I didn't call him back. I just sent him a text of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3. And he sent me back a text. And said, okay, I ain't going to quit. But I need you to call me when you get through hunting. <laughs> and he testified the next Wednesday. He said, that verse went like an error through my heart. And I thought, Lord, how can I give up on what you've called me to do when you never gave up? On saving me. And so listen, I, I really believe that we have to set our affections on the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that everything that He endured and despised was for us and because of us. And that these things are the very least that we can do for Him and the most that we can do for him. And that's what we ought to be doing as Christians. Nothing less. And I don't know that we can do any more. But let me say to you this morning, I'm done.
before you can do any of these things, for Him, you have to believe and receive what He's done for you. This, this, somebody gave us a little, it might have been for, I don't remember if it was for pastor appreciation or for Christmas. Somebody gave us one of them little tear-off calendars with like a daily quote on it that you read every day for inspiration. I think it's called church signs or something like that. But This morning it was, we don't tear it off like we're supposed to, so it was on the corner dresser this morning. I tore off Thursday, Friday, and then I tore off today's. And there were three, I didn't necessarily agree with all the sentiment of it. But there were three little phrases there that stuck out to me. Give up. If you're going to come to Christ, you got to give up. I can't tell you how many times I tried to reform my life on my own. I can tell you that I failed every single time. You got to give up trying to be your own Lord and Savior. You got to give up trying to do things your way. You got to give up running in your own power and in your own strength and in your own understanding. You got to give up. I think one of, the, one, one of the clearest words for salvation is that you've got to deny yourself and surrender to Christ. The second little phrase was give in. You've got to give up control of your life and give that to Jesus. Declare Him to be the only means of salvation, the only one worthy to be the Lord of your life. I'm telling you, when I bowed my knee to Jesus that, that Tuesday night in October of 1993, here, all I could say to Him is, Lord, I have made an absolute wreck of my life. And if you will save me, if, if you can't save me, if you will save me, I give you everything that I am. I'm, I'm giving up and I am giving in. Be, be the Lord and Savior of my life. Listen, I ain't got over that yet. Give up, give in. And then give it all you got. Give it all you got. I'm going to be honest with you. I do not understand a half-hearted lukewarm life for Jesus. My wife will testify, my pastor will testify that from the day that I gave up and I gave in, I felt like I had to give him all I got left. Long before I knew he called me to preach, my preacher tell you, I was at the church. When the doors were open, I was doing what I could to serve any way that I could serve. Because after all he'd done for me, I didn't think that there was any other thing to do but give it all to him. 
Now, I'm not telling you that I've always been faithful in every sense of the word. But I, when I ain't giving it all I got, I feel ashamed. Because he's given me all he had. What can you do for Jesus? Lay aside those hindrances. Cast off those sins. Run faithfully and keep your eyes on Him. Give up, give in, give it everything that you've got to bring Him honor and glory. Let's, let's stand as our musicians come. Lord, I'm amazed at how you set Jerusalem in your sights. Knowing full well what waited on you there. God, we'll, we'll look for excuses to get out of things that we dread. We'll, we'll look for excuses to, to skip that appointment or not do that thing that you've called us to do. But you knew every betrayal. You knew every word of slander. You knew every mockery and insult that would be hurled at you. You knew that you'd be scourged nearly to death. Paraded naked through the streets of Jerusalem bearing a cross that did not belong to you but belonged to us. But you set your sights on Jerusalem and you never blinked an eye. You never backed up. The closest that you came was in that garden that night when your sweat became as great drops of blood and you said, Lord, if there's any, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. But then you immediately surrendered your will again. Literally woke your disciples up from their slumber and said, it's time. After all that you've done for us, God, we shouldn't do anything less for you. Than to lay aside our hindrances, cast off our sins, be faithful unto death. While we focus our lives on you. Maybe there's somebody here this morning. They're ready to begin that race of faith. They're ready to begin that journey. I pray they'd give up right here. Give in. And then just give it all they've got. Have your will and your way in this invitation. We'll praise you for anything and everything you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.